Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye and this week I am joined by registered nutritionist and author Pixie Turner. We're going to be discussing how social media impacts our relationship with food, something that I think has really come into prominence in the last 10 years as we are always looking at images of food on our phones, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram or whatever. I know for me it's had a huge impact on how I view food, um, particularly when I was struggling with a more disordered relationship with food and so I hope this conversation um, helps to give you clarity on that but also helps us all to understand who to follow for nutrition information, what to listen to and what the red flags are. So without further ado let's get into our conversation with the brilliant Pixie. Oh and I should say if you do enjoy this episode please tag us at train happy podcast and use the hashtag train happy podcast. All right let's get into it. So welcome, Pixie, to the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Before we get started, let's tell everyone about you, introduce yourself. Um, Yeah, go for it. All righty. I am Pixie. I'm a registered nutritionist. I'm also a trainee therapist, uh, author, public speaker, and science communicator. I do a whole bunch of different things because if I just did one thing, I'd be really, really bored. And so I, yeah doing all the things all the things um and we're going to talk about your like a lot heavily around the topic of your new book today so yeah author in there as well so if you want to just tell everyone what your book is that's coming out in a matter of weeks is that right it's really soon yeah it's called the insta food diet how social media has shaped the way we eat and the whole conversation is all around the different ways in which various social media platforms have had an impact on what how when why we eat, the food industry, restaurant industry, uh, on food policy as well, and all the different aspects within that, including things like food extremism and food shaming and food perfection and food perform- performative eating and all of these different aspects are all, all covered in that. Okay, but well, we're going to try and cover as much of that as possible because I think this is fascinating because I know on a personal level that Instagram in particular and actually like we just we had a chat about this um for your book um Mm -hmm. I have no idea what came of that chat so I'm excited to it's in the book um, is it oh great okay made the cut um but you know Instagram massively informed a lot of the food rules I created and particularly the way I engage with food thought about food and I wondered um what your experience was and because I know you originally started as like a food blogger online that was your original kind of um presence online and you've evolved to pixie nutrition now so tell us about that journey I started on Instagram as a wellness wanker, basically. I was one of those people who fell for a lot of misinformation that was on the internet, but also a lot of it was on Instagram. 
I followed people who only ate the same way I did. And I both followed and perpetuated a huge amount of that misinformation. So I definitely have that firsthand experience as well of how social media and Instagram in particular can really fuck you up with food. Can I swear? Is that okay? Please do. <laughs> and like, so it can really like fuck up your relationship with food massively depending on what kind of things you see, what kind of things you follow, what kind of vulnerable position you might be in at that moment in time. And it did not do some good things to me in my relationship with food. It was not good. And it was partly Instagram and partly the real world, more so the real world, to be honest, that got me out of that. And for some reason, I've decided to continue being on Instagram because that is where all the misinformation is. So that's where I feel the need to be as well. And how long ago was that? Like how many years ago was that? I think around eight years ago is when I started posting all my food pictures. I think it was around eight years ago. It's a long time. I think it was about the same time that I was as well. And yeah, I originally came to Instagram as a food account because it seemed like Instagram at that time was very much becoming a like take photos of your food, upload it kind of platform. Um, especially if you were into quote health and um, quote nutrition, um, that was like greatly encouraged. And my whole feed, as you kind of pointed out previously, my whole feed was full of perfectly presented food. And um, I became known as someone who like perfectly presented my breakfast every day and had to upload it. Otherwise I'd freak out and, all these things and it's so interesting that what would have happened if we didn't have Instagram like would you have studied nutrition and gone on to do the have the career you had without Instagram oh hell no absolutely not no uh Instagram and all the misinformation and the anger that that stirred up in me was the reason I ended up studying nutrition is partly anger and partly because I didn't want to be a hypocrite so I decided to get a qualification in if I hadn't have done that if it hadn't been for Instagram I would probably have done what I fully expected to be doing at that point in time, which is study medicine and potentially become a doctor. And I look back now and I see that that is probably not the right thing for me to be doing. Power of hindsight, I guess. But at that point, that was very much my entire career plan. Mm. And I think, yeah, I think it's really cool how you kind of potentially have turned a negative into a positive. Um, and I think, yeah, despite having probably like, you know, Instagram being maybe a bit of a troubling place, like a, can be, could have, could have been quite a, like a place that caused maybe a lot of like anxiety around food and things like that to, um, yeah, be able to make that shift, I think is really promising. Cause I imagine there are people listening who might be in that anxious place right now. And I think both you and I have made a transition to social media being a place that's safe for us, that is a happy place to log into sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes it can be angering and frustrating, but on the whole, it's not damaging to our mental health and, you know, how we view food and ourselves and our bodies. Yeah, and whole, I, like. yeah, for sure. And I mean, I see it very much as channeling anger and frustration into productivity in a constructive way, rather than something that could have been quite destructive had it gone in a different direction or yeah. turned inward, for example. Yeah. So in the kind of last eight years that we've both been online, there have been so many food trends that seem to come and go and, you know, 
there's so many um things I mean I'm thinking about like when I first logged on it was all about um clean eating macro counting prepping boxes and boxes of Tupperware full of food and meal prep and all that kind of stuff um but there's also been I think nowadays it's more like intermittent fasting keto all that kind of stuff so what are the trends that you've pointed out like in your book specifically and where did they come from why did they get so popular on social media and maybe we can debunk a few myths around those trends Mm. so I guess there are kind of two kind of main parts to that is firstly why do these extreme and restrictive and crazy diets gain traction and popularity on social media to begin with and then there's perhaps a, a note on how how the pattern in terms of these diets has has been and and why that is and they're both really interesting points so to go to the first one why do they gain traction on social media so so easily and so quickly and there are a number of reasons i think is that firstly social media is a free platform literally anyone can start an account and start posting whatever they want with very few consequences and that means it's essentially a kind of democracy in a sense, which can have its upsides, but can also have its downsides in the sense that total idiots can write whatever they want with no consequences, even when there definitely should be some, because what they're writing is total garbage. But however, we are in a place where they are allowed to say whatever they like online. So there, there is that part to it. There's also the immediacy of it and the accessibility of it. And, that, and literally there are so many people on social media. I think it's around a third of the global population is now on social media, which is huge. It's billions and billions of people. So if you're going to start any kind of group or join any kind of community, social media is a fantastic place to do that because it just has so many members and because you can access so much more easily without having to rely on money or geography or all these other factors that may prevent you from being able to to form or join that kind of group and um in addition to that platforms like instagram really allow us to curate who we follow and what we see more so on Instagram than anywhere else. So on places like Twitter and Facebook, you get the share and the retweet buttons, which do mean that you sometimes see content from people who you don't follow. But on, but on Instagram, you only see content from people you follow, which means you can create a massive echo chamber or where everyone around you who you are following and whose content you see is very much mirroring what you already believe. So it very much reinforces your pre-existing beliefs and doesn't challenge you in any way. And it also allows you to think that these views are perhaps more popular than they actually realistically are in the world outside of social media. Plus, there is so much content on Instagram or just social media in general that it is the extreme crazy stuff that really stands out to us. If you were to scroll past, you know, 50 pictures of pasta, the one that's going to stand out is the one that's like bright green for some reason or is so um, so massively piled on a plate that you can't possibly imagine ever finishing it those are really going to stand out and the more people are on social media the more content exists the more the extreme stuff needs needs to the more people need to kind of feel the need to post that extreme stuff in order to stand out in the first place plus we have the algorithms which suck especially on youtube like if the algorithm on youtube if you start looking for videos on like vegetarianism it's gonna promote raw vegan stuff to you if you like look up something about how to start running. It's going to start promoting ultra marathons because by supporting and encouraging you to view all of this crazy extreme content, which our brains are drawn to because it's novel, it encourages you to spend a lot more time online watching more videos, which means 
you spend more time, which means they get more ad revenue and which means they get more money. So they are very much financially invested in us spending huge amounts of time watching the various content that exists and pushing us towards extreme and unscientific views is a great way of getting us to do that because our brains go, wait, what the hell is this, this weird thing? And so we, we're really drawn to that. And so in this way, a lot of social media just really encourages just more and more and more extreme views. Yeah, I think of the case of YouTube of just the, it was like really popular maybe like three or four years ago now, but people doing like these like ridiculous calorie challenges where they would I eat wrote like, about these, yes. Yeah, <laughs> a ridiculous amount of food and then film it in one video. But all the, but all the people doing it were thin white fitness influencers doing these super high calorie challenges and they'd get this clickbait views and you know people like wow oh my goodness you know you have abs and you eat thousands upon thousands of calories um right it had to be those people it had had to be those people because nobody else will be able to do that in a socially acceptable way that would be praised because these are people who for the most part their content is focused on discipline motivation and restriction as well and it's very much about me overcoming my willpower and my bodily desires and shaping my body into this sculpted blob for lack of a better term. But, and so, and so when they do something like a 10,000 calorie challenge, people know it's the exception. And so they can get away with it. Whereas if someone who was just your average person or God forbid, somebody in a larger body did this, they would get huge amounts of criticism for it because people would assume that's the norm for them rather than an exception to their otherwise, otherwise very, very disciplined life. Yes. And it's frustrating. I I think it also presents, and in that point, in terms of that specific calorie challenge videos and the type of fitness influencers that do that, I think also kind of makes light of, makes it feel fun and cute and quirky to have this very all or nothing relationship with food. So you go, you're swinging a pendulum from, okay, um, massive restriction to essentially what looks like a glory, like I, I don't want to use the word binge lightly, but, um, but it does look that way. But it does look that way. And I think that's that's really normalised and accepted and entertaining in the fitness space. And um, I think that confuses a lot of people and it can be very conflicting because it's like on one hand, like, I mean, I was talking with friends over the weekend and all of us have been on social media um and we were kind of laughing and joking about all the ways that we genuinely believed that zero calorie syrup was better than maple syrup and how i you know i convinced myself that if i put protein powder in something it did taste different it did it was it was better um and the thing that tasted better for me like in all those situations it wasn't that it did actually like objectively they're not better like it's objectively not right chickpea cookie dough is not objectively better than cookie dough with like flour and sugar and butter and all that stuff yeah but I genuinely believe that for like years that it was and what that what was really powering that feeling was a sense that it was morally better to eat this and therefore it tasted better because morally I felt I felt better but also it was the approval I got from social media. So not only did I get the message of that, this was a good thing from social media. Like that's what I should be doing. I should just be replacing any sort of um, sweet dessert with a 
healthified version because that's the kind of social media I was following at the time. Um, I think probably you and I, similar uh, kind of thing. And um, then social media was convincing me that it did taste that good. And I'm like, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. <laughs> um, I know now it didn't, but I really truly believe for a long time that what I was doing was the best thing. And, you know, that was part, that social media influence in that my, in my relationship with food was so powerful in, in the way it made me view what I was eating. And I would, you know, because everyone popularized certain protein bars, I became obsessed with buying protein bars. I would never have had a protein bar otherwise, but it's because I saw people on Instagram eating protein bars. So I ate protein bars. It's very much like, um, you know, in Mean Girls, when it's like, I saw Katie Heron wearing army pants and flip-flops. <laughs> so I put army pants and flip-flops. It's just like that. It is just like that. And as you said, when you surround yourself with an echo chamber, when you're following everyone who's eating, you know, spiralized vegetables instead of oh, pasta God, and all that kind yeah. of stuff, you're like, oh, that, that's what healthy people do. That is, that is health. That's what we do. We eat protein bars, spiralized um, courgette, um, zero calorie noodles, all that kind of stuff. And that's what we do. That, that's fitness. And almond milk. And that's it. I do actually like almond milk. In defense of almond milk, I do like it. Um, but I also, in the context of like a, a normal diet, I suppose. But yeah, I think, um, I don't know. It's so interesting. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much power this online space can have. And these people who we don't actually know in real life, it's amazing how much of a difference they can make. I mean, to give an example from, from my life as well, I was very much in the kind of vegan, more plant-based space on social media. And everyone would do Pancake Sunday hashtag pancake Sunday. And because everyone who I was following, or at least the people who, I, who mattered the most to me, were all always eating pancakes on a Sunday, I decided I had to do that too. That was something that I started doing, not because I wanted to eat pancakes, not because people around me in real life were doing that. The people around me in real life couldn't give less of a shit if I ate pancakes or not. But every Sunday from that point onwards, because of the people I followed, I made pancakes, even if I wanted them, even if I didn't want them. And they were not even like nice pancakes. They were like vegan gluten-free pancakes, which basically, why, why bother making them at that point? I mean, what is, the, what is the point of a vegan gluten-free pancake? But that's what I was doing, like making like chocolate and peanut butter and cinnamon and all these different flavors. But that was purely because of social media. So the people we follow do have that kind of power over us if we allow them to have that power and if we're in circumstances in life where that power is more easily given. And I think um, in the context of that kind of time period we're discussing as well, I think that's when uh, clean eating was at its height. And once again, something I was absolutely invested in was using the hashtag clean eating a lot. Um, you know, was, like I said, obsessed with making a healthified version of any type of meal I could think of. Um, and I think of, you know, for me, the, one of the first uh, wellness blogs I came across um, massively influenced my decision to be gluten-free and to not to eat clean. And it was from then onwards that that mass, you know, that created a very, I think quite an, um, 
you know, quite a deep, disordered relationship with food that's taken years to untangle and unravel. Um, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on those wellness bloggers that are still going today, um, still putting out this information and, you know, how we, how we kind of navigate that. Because is it all bad? Is it like blanket, no, none of this is helpful? Or is it a case of if you think you have a pretty good relationship with food that this this kind of content, you know, might be occasionally nice to look at um, with, you know, with a take it with a pinch of salt kind of view? Or, um, but if you would say that someone is in that kind of disordered place that this content can be harmful and triggering and it's along a spectrum what do you what do you think it's definitely more nuanced than i think we give it credit for i think these these bloggers you know the, the big bloggers back in the day you know where people like you know deliciously ella the hemsleys these kinds of people then natasha corey honestly healthy these kinds of people who i i followed all of them mm-hmm. i got sent their books sometimes you know and i would sometimes be in the same room as them and they definitely influenced me. So I do have that personal bias where I am, there is part of me that is still angry at them for not taking the responsibility they should have. I do in part understand because when you grow that quickly on social media, you don't really realize that every single person who's following you is a real person who you can impact in some way and who may actually get a negative impact as a result of your posts. I grew quite quickly on social media as well. And I, you know, at first I didn't take the responsibility seriously and I didn't recognize it. So I understand how that's possible. The difference between, the difference as I see it between me and these people who are all, for the most part, still very popular on social media is I fucking apologized. I went online and I wrote a post and I publicly apologized for all the harm that I caused people in my wellness days. That is something that none of these people have done. Instead, they have erased history and have tried to rewrite the past and claimed a complete lack of responsibility and not, and with a, without a shred of empathy or compassion for the people who they have duped as if those people didn't even exist. And that's the part that makes me really angry because I think you at least be responsible for the harm that you caused at least own it and say that you're trying to do better isn't that what everyone's always trying to do what we're all being told that we should be doing all the time and yes we should but that has not been happening that has never happened and that is incredibly frustrating i think and yes there are some people who get inspiration from those kinds of posts great good for them but i think inspiration can so easily tip into comparison and that's where it causes a lot of harm is when we start not just saying oh this is something really looks really delicious that i might want to make it's when that's also attached with a narrative of health that is perhaps very privileged and idealized and moralistic that actually isn't accurate it's when that's also then turns into oh if i eat like this person then maybe i'll look like them too if i eat how this person does maybe i will also cure all sorts of chronic conditions that you cannot cure with diet no matter what some idiot on the internet says like that's where it gets really risky because those things are harmful and untrue at the same time Mm, and I think yeah like I could get the glow if I go gluten-free which is kind of what I thought um that isn't also that is not a thing that is not (laughs) what your skin does like the glowing skin is not generally seen as a typical sign of health it is a standard of beauty but it is definitely not a sign of health what I find really interesting as well is 
also how social media has perpetuated that um, food is responsible for all our um, all our health issues that you know I really started to like pathologize every single thing like I've got a headache it must be food related I have a spot it must be something I've eaten um even like with IBS which seems logically like it's completely a food issue like for me it wasn't a food issue but I absolutely believed it was for so long you know the amount of you know I've got a lot of friends from social media and I think there's a certain generation of people that now think I'm experiencing this uh, discomfort, this pain, this something with my body that I'm not happy with. And I think one of the first thoughts, because the way social media has popularized this view of food and health is that we immediately say like, what am I eating? It must be something I'm eating. So like, you know, you'll get top performers on Broadway in the West End saying like, I don't eat gluten, I don't eat dairy, I don't eat any of these things, it helps me sing better. Whereas like, I don't know if those things are factually true, but because wellness became popularized and, you know, we are, it became, you know, so much more accessible in a way, because largely is it inaccessible. Um, it doesn't, it just make you immediately think like, oh, if I'm suffering in some way, it must be something I've eaten. Hugely. And this is what I see in clinic a lot of the time is that people cut out foods for, for no good reason and think that just because there's something wrong with them, then it has to be food related. I mean, for example, there is no evidence that for the vast majority of people, for the vast, vast majority of people, there is no link at all between dairy and acne. There is a tiny subset of the population for whom that is the case, but for the vast majority, cutting out dairy, not going to do anything at all, not going to make any difference. Even with something like any kind of gut symptoms, like bloating, for example, when I work with someone who has bloating issues, there are a huge number of things that we work on and try together before cutting out foods even comes on the agenda. There are so many things that, that we can do and that are much easier and much more straightforward and much gentler and less restrictive than having to cut out foods. And yes, I do firmly believe that social media has a huge amount of responsibility for that because of all the information and the misinformation that's so easily accessible. But it also does stem from our societal model of neoliberal healthism, which essentially says that health is a moral responsibility and is your personal responsibility. And if you don't pursue health at all costs, you're a bad citizen. Which again attaches this huge narrative of individual responsibility that you have to do all this yourself, even though the vast majority of factors that affect our health are way outside of our control and are things that we cannot easily change or do not generally have the power to change. It's not like just food and exercise, it's you know, it's the big things like income, education, access to health, access to healthcare, access to food, access to green spaces big things that we can't really do much about because that's just how we grow up. We can't decide where and when and how we're born. But we don't like that because we very much like things to be within our control because it makes us feel more comfortable and makes us feel safer. Mm. Yes. And I, I do think that is one of, one of the biggest um, misconceptions that has been perpetuated by, I think, by the fitness industry, whether it was with social media or not but I think it's only like been spread further and got like louder is that idea that um 
your body and your health is 100% within your control if you just follow my 28-day plan, if you buy my guide, if you uh, read my book, if you follow me, um, because we want that to be the case. <laughs> we desperately want that to be the case. Um, and people are telling us that they have the answer. Um, when you said, like, we need to think about um, huge factors that aren't on an individual level, like you said, it's a societal level, it's on, um, it's a political issue, it's a case of um, governments and policies and, you know, reducing poverty and those huge factors that um, we can't necessarily control within ourselves and which is why you know you and I both kind of I think take that broader approach and say like we can help you with food we can help you with fitness but this is not going to solve all your issues this is not going to solve the problems um we want to help you feel better but we can't perform miracles and I think there's a lot of miracle promising Oh, yes. I mean, this is also partly why I'm training to be a psychotherapist is mm. because a lot of the issues and concerns and anxieties people have around food can stem from deeper issues that they have with themselves or the, you know, their bodies or the way they are as a person. Food has this incredible power to essentially give a message to the world about who we are as a person. That is how we perceive each other. We very much make huge amounts of judgment calls and assumptions about each other simply based on the food we eat. And we see food as a vehicle to our body presentation, which is a vehicle to, which is essentially representative of our health and therefore our worth as a human being in the world. And so food has this incredibly deep connection to how we perceive ourselves and how we feel about ourselves and our own worth as human beings, that is deep. That is hella mm. deep and psychological. And so that is why I feel like I need to explore that so much further because I spend way too much time asking people about their childhoods and a lot less time than I expected asking people what they eat. I don't really ask people what they eat. I ask about their childhoods and then try and figure out the why of why they eat the way they do. Far more interesting. So interesting. Um, so interesting. And yeah, I, I think it's the point about identity is also really important because even just like your username on Instagram is how we now, you know, form part of our identity. And my original Instagram handle was clean fit lifestyle. What does that say about me and what I wanted to present to the world and who I wanted to be? I wanted to be um, healthy and pure and, you know, uh, I think um, it's perfectionism as well. It's so interesting how, you know, whether you've labelled yourself with a name that, I mean, your original username, you don't mind me saying, is was plant-based pixie. That held you yeah. to being plant-based, no deviations. You were in that box now. And we like to put ourselves in these boxes. Um, you know, talking about previously about how kind of quite restrictive practices with food and nutrition have kind of come into the mainstream because of social media. I have seen so many people with a username with FODMAP in the username. I'd never heard of FODMAP diet before Instagram. And I'd love you to like, from a nutritional perspective, just explain what that is and, and how it isn't a diet trend and how it is more of a clinical um, tool. Yeah. So FODMAP, oh God, please let me get this right. <laughs> uh, FODMAP is an acronym. It stands for fermentable oligo 
dimonosaccharides and polyols. I think that's what it is. I really hope that's what it is. Otherwise, it sounds good to me, Pixie. It's yeah. something like that, anyway. <laughs> and um, so, a low FODMAP diet is a clinical intervention that has really decent success with IBS, where you have to essentially go on an and where you essentially have to go on an elimination diet, where you cut out a whole number of different foods then gradually reintroduce them one by one in varying quantities to find out where your upper threshold is where of what you what your body can handle and what affects your symptoms what doesn't it is not something to just take on lightly because it's really restrictive and it's a lot of things that you can't eat anymore and it is not something that should be long term because what happens when people do this just by themselves without the actual clinical support that they need is that they tend to get stuck in the first phase of elimination and don't actually progress to the reintroduction phase, which is the most important because any good nutrition professional will try and get you to eat as many different things as you possibly can without harm. The more different things you can eat, the better. That is the approach I take as well. If you can eat something, go for it. If you can't, that's a shame. If there's, if, if you know, for example, if you're lactose intolerant and that means you can eat cheese, but you can't eat milk, great, eat cheese because cheese is great. Cheese is delicious. And if you can, why not? It's amazing. So I'm always trying to get to the point where people are eating as many different a variety of things as they can. And so when people get stuck in that elimination phase, it is not good. It is not a place you want to be long-term. It is not good for your health to be in that place long-term. Yeah. And I think also, is it worth noting that it should be something that's done under supervision, um, not done on our own anyway? 100%. You need, you need the supervision, ideally, of a gut health specialist dietitian and mm. who is keeping an eye on you regularly throughout all of this whole process to make sure that you're doing it right and you're doing it in a safe way and you're looking after yourself. And they can really help you out with that. If you're doing it on your own, you get lost really easily. I don't recommend that people do it on their own at all. Mm. Um, so we're going to slightly pivot, but, but also slightly going back to something we were talking about before, because I do really want to talk about how the people with influence that we follow, can, and let me reword this question a bit better, because this was, that was a, not a great sentence. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, to kind of, rewind a little bit and discuss um rewind rewind rewind, rewind. pixie and i both love hamilton and if you haven't seen the movie yet it's, go it's watch it yet. oh it's fantastic if then i'm surprised that's the first reference yet um yeah um but i'm really intrigued as to your thoughts on where we're getting our nutritional information online who we're following and also how the people we're following and their relationship with food um, then informs how we interpret whatever a healthy relationship with food is. For example, in the fitness space in particular, you've got a lot of people giving um, nutrition information and, you know, there's huge debate as to whether they should be doing that in the first place. 9.9 um, .9 times out of 10, I'm team no, um, unless there's like the relevant qualification. But two days on nutrition course to me is not the relevant qualification. Nope. Um, <laughs> however, there's people who with millions of followers, um, you know, promoting their, the way they eat. And, you know, I'm thinking of people who don't even necessarily put out formal nutrition plans or anything like that, but they 
are vlogging what they eat in a day, they're sharing their meals, and um, what we're consuming is not necessarily what we would consider a, um, a positive relationship with food. And a lot of the times it comes with restriction and cleaning, like, like you and I both said, when we think of ourselves and the way that we presented food and, you know, the way we spoke about it, thought about it, shared it, um, you know, I wouldn't say that I was always sharing a healthy relationship with food at all. And I wasn't mod, I wasn't role modeling, um, that at all. So I just wanted to know kind of what your thoughts are on, you know, who we get our information from and how we critically like assess the person we're following. Cause you might like to follow them for other reasons. I'm not saying anyone with a bad relationship with food isn't worth following. Cause that doesn't make them a, like, you know, I don't think we should write people off as humans because of how they relate to food because I have a lot of compassion for those people being there do you know what I mean got the t-shirt but I do think like how do we be aware of that and you know critically consume content in a way that's um not going to be damaging or detrimental to our own relationship with food yeah as I said before I think these kinds of influencers need to take more responsibility but I also think that we as consumers need to take more responsibility over what kind of content we consume because that is the thing about social media is that you can control that you can very much decide who you follow and you can hit that unfollow button very easily if you want to and I think people need to do that more so for example if you're following someone who has no health qualifications whatsoever and yet is telling you what to eat, massive red flag, massive. They could be talking about their own personal experience, sure, but I think even there you have to be careful that there's no insinuation that what they are saying therefore applies to everybody because that can very easily happen. That line is a very blurry one and people try and get away with a lot by talking about their own personal stories, which are very valid, but they try and sometimes do it in a way that is kind of sneakily endorsing what they're doing to others. And we have to be so careful about how people interpret that because if they then interpret, this is my story as I should do this too, that is a problem. And that is definitely something we, we do not want. So if you're, if you're following someone who has no health qualifications whatsoever, maybe just look at to them for inspiration for like nice, pretty food, but not actually in terms of how should I be eating as a human being as a dietary pattern for the rest of my life. So I do think qualifications is probably a good place to start. It is, however, only the starting point because there will always be people who do have health qualifications who say really dumb shit on the internet. I mean, take most famous American doctors as a classic example of that. Most of them, awful people to follow. You can, you can name check a few people because I know that our American listeners... Oh, you know, Dr. Oz is the obvious one. You've also got people like Mark Hyman. You've got that nutritionfacts.org idiot who completely misrepresented my research. I'm very angry at him because he took my research and wrote about it in this awful way. How dare he do that? He's an idiot. Also, he's wrong about so many different things. If you're following a doctor who has the name of the diet that they follow as part of their handle, I would argue that that person's probably not going to be very objective and they're probably going to be hugely biased. How can you trust that that person's going to give you accurate information rather than just the information that obviously fits with their worldview? Like, yes, everybody does that to an extent, but if it's right there in their Instagram name, 
Like the keto doctor kind of thing. Yeah. Like if it's, you know, like vegan MD or low carb MD or whatever, I don't know if these people exist, you know, but that kind of example, that is probably a sign that that person's not going to give you objective and reasonable and nuanced advice. Nope. That person is heavily biased right from the start. Maybe, maybe take their, what they're saying with a pinch of salt, maybe look for information elsewhere as well. Also look for the really obvious things like one size fits all approach, which does not exist when it comes to food at all. Anybody who uses the word detox unironically is an idiot who doesn't understand anything about how basic biochemistry and human physiology works. So those are like really good red flags to kind of watch out for right from the start. If you're if your doctor that you're following on the internet, cough, Mark Hyman, is selling you detox plans, mm, probably not a good source of advice. Mark Hyman does not say much that is accurate on the internet. It is quite problematic and I wish that he would stop. But <laughs> and lots yet, of people like him. Yep, and has a huge platform. Because... And sells, he sells supplements and detox plans. And even he claims that some of these supplements are, you know, meant to cure certain things or manage certain things. And yet uh, they contain the very ingredients that he otherwise writes are toxins. It's so hypocritical. And I think that's, and I, you know, I, like I have a lot of like compassion for people who read that information because I think particularly when people have like medical doctor by their name, you know, like that's a bit of like an abuse of power in the sense of taking advantage of people who just see the title and like, of course, you, of course, you know what you're talking about. Like, of course you do. Um, and it's really yeah. hard to have that discernment if you're not in the scientific field. So we appreciate you just busting that myth because yeah. I think, you know, for some of us, me included, sometimes it's like, you know, I look to people like yourself to kind of, you know, say that no, 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 don't, don't listen to that don't listen to that because it's really hard especially when you're looking for answers and you're in a very like vulnerable health position um and you're looking for anything you can to like potentially make yourself better um yeah I really do understand that yeah exactly I really do understand how difficult it can be in that situation and how how if if, if you're desperate and you're vulnerable of course you're going to fall for this stuff because these people you know that is literally what they are trying to do is to get you hooked while you're vulnerable because it works really well. And I don't blame people for falling for this misinformation at all. I really don't. I only hope that by mentioning some red flags and also by highlighting that qualifications is only the starting point for the rest of the conversation that you need to have with yourself about whether to trust someone. I just hope that that can potentially allow someone to just take a breath, take a step back and go, I know I really want this to be true, but is it? How can I look at this perhaps a little bit more carefully and really consider the impact that this might have on my health and whether I actually need to trust this person? And to just think about that just a little bit more, because I think we do need to be a bit more skeptical and not just trust everything we read online blindly. I absolutely concur. And I think it's also um, important to note that you've kind of extended that in terms of your new podcast with Dr. Nikki Stamp, um, in bad taste. I love her. Um, yeah, she's fab. She's fab. Um, and you look at Netflix documentaries, because this is another part of how we're getting our health information. So it's kind of almost like translated off of Instagram and Facebook to huge platforms like Netflix. So 
what's the podcast in terms of like what documentaries have you been looking at and just are there any big red flags like just on the off like do you recommend any of them to watch for like good advice I haven't yet found one that I'm happy to recommend that especially one that exists in the UK I know in Canada they have one by Timothy Caulfield they also have one by Dr Jen Gunter which aren't necessarily on Netflix anymore I think or weren't to begin with but they are great but that's in Canada. We don't really have anything in the UK necessarily. And so the whole point of the podcast is that these health documentaries are largely really terrible. So please don't watch them. Instead of watching them, just listen to us destroy them and tear them to pieces and analyze all of the various claims and debunk them or discuss them in a lot more detail. Do that instead of watching this crap because we're putting ourselves through this torture and it is painful. It is really painful sometimes, especially because I have to watch each one several times to actually be able to make all of my notes. And we make a lot of notes while we're doing it. And that is painful. So this is a way to make all that pain worth it in some way and try and have fun in the process. We've, so the podcast is still fairly recent. We've only been doing it for a few months. So far, we've watched um, documentaries about veganism, about fake cancer cures, and about how sugar is essentially the root of all evil. That's kind of where we're at right now. And it's amazing how... What's so interesting about these documentaries is that they do the exact opposite of scientific research. They say, here's an answer. How do we present this in a way that's going to convince people? And how do we build a question and a, a series of methods that gets us to our pre-existing conclusion. Whereas in research, we say, here's a question. Let's find out what the answer is. We don't know what the answer is. We ask the question and we find it out. It is the complete opposite of what a documentary does. And they are so bad. Sometimes even the camera work is really bad, like really bad. And we aren't just looking at Netflix ones, we're also picking ones that are just on YouTube because they are that terrible. It's, it's actually really fun uh, and also really painful. And so far, I haven't found one that I'm happy to recommend to people because they're really biased. Are we surprised? No. No, because someone's got to fund it, right? <laughs> yeah, and the amount of conflict of interest that is really completely ignored and undeclared is fascinating. Mm. And would you say that's the same for social media as well in terms of, you know conflicts of interest you mean yeah like you know if people mm. are making sponsored content for a certain brand um that you know they're willing to put their name to and they like like a detox product like a a mm. supplement with without proven evidence yeah i would say with with sponsored content it's a really kind of gray area because i think that i don't think it's inherently a bad thing mm. But I think that as with all things I've mentioned, they're red flags. They're not outright dismissals of people or various pieces of content. But it is worth just going, what does this tell me about this person? Why is this happening? What are they doing with this? Do I actually like it independent of everything else? And I want to talk to you and it kind of like leads on a bit nicely from this question. There is a link. I will get to it. Um, because I think, um, so one of, the, for me, one of the positive things about social media and why I like going on there now is because, um, I think of the, um, kind of more anti-diet movement, the intuitive eating space, the haze work that were work that I would not have come across had it not been 
for that. Um, but I do think, so part one of the question is kind of what, what do you think about the kind of positive uses of social media in, in that kind of context and in other ways? But secondly, with those ideas becoming more mainstream once again, and this is something we see on social media a lot, whether it's been with body positivity, which we've discussed before on this podcast, with how it kind of gets co-opted by diet culture, by the misinformation that's on, that's on social media. And, you know, a red, would a red flag be if an account that's supposedly, you know, not promoting diets, doesn't believe in diets, doesn't believe, um, you know, uses non-diet language, uses body positive language, but then will do a sponsored, do a sponsored ad with um, the log, the logot, the yogurt light and free, for example. So like, you know, a healthy yogurt. Uh, it's not even a healthy yogurt. That's it's a, a diet yogurt. Diet yogurt is very good. Like a diet product, a, um, I don't know, like a fat burner supplement. Um, those are contradictions in my eyes to, you know, if, so, if someone has a message on it, also understand that not everyone understands why that's a contradiction. Um, but I do think we have to be really careful with how brands are taking on this language and able to use these spaces on social media to say like, you know, we are a body positive brand. We are a anti-diet brand, but here's, our before and after photos here's our weight loss product and I think that's a red flag so what are your thoughts so summarize (laughs) thoughts on uh, the kind of like anti-diet movement intuitive eating space online and how we can once again be discerning with how we realize like who's the real deal who's co-opting yeah Look, I love shitting on social media as much as the next person, but it is worth pointing out that there are some good things about social media and some benefits. For one, it does provide inspiration, which is amazing. I mean, if you're not sure, if you have, if you get a veg box and you get some random vegetable that you've never seen before, you can go on social media and find out what to do with it. That is awesome. I also, I love using social media as a way to find places or restaurants to go and visit when I go on holiday, for example. Mm. It's so good for things like that. There's also that sense of community that you can build which can be a really really positive thing for example like if you're someone who has celiac disease and nobody else around you has the same condition you can go on the internet and find other people who are posting about the meals they're making that are gluten-free or the products that they're finding and you can make your life better because of that like if you're a young queer person who's in a really small town and nobody around you is queer in any way you can go on the internet and find other queer people to hang out with in a virtual space who can make you feel more comfortable as the person you are. That is amazing. And that is one of the things that I really love about social media. I also love the education aspect of it. I learned some really fascinating things on social media. So there are some positives. And one of those big positives is that the anti-diet movement and this body acceptance um, and radical acceptance movement has really grown on social media, which is wonderful because we need more of that stuff. The world is a mess. So many people really don't like themselves and that is a huge problem. And so having this this space, having these little spaces on the internet that are free from diet culture as much as possible are just amazing. Like that 
that is such a wonderful thing that the world really needs. And that's one of, for me, one of the best things about social media is that there is this incredible community who have grown and, you know, who are showcasing this incredible message and helping it gain traction as a result and therefore helping people to be kinder to themselves. That is awesome. So that is one thing that I really love about social media. It is amazing. What do you I think, don't like... Oh, I was going to slightly interject. Just do you think that had you come across that information when you logged on eight years ago, things might be different? Yeah, I actually really do. If I'd found that instead of go vegan and all your problems will go away, imagine how much different my life would be. Also at that mm. point, I was a raging perfectionist. So anything that would have done something in the way of kind of managing that, which instead years of therapy will do that too. That would have been so much better for my life. So mm. yes, I definitely, definitely think that. Um, so what I don't like about this whole thing on social media is that yes, there are people who are co-opting this message because when something becomes popular, people like to take it and steal it and change it into something that it is not. And for me, one of the biggest red flags is healthcare professionals who advertise both intuitive eating and weight management. Mm. And I think that is extremely unethical, irresponsible and deceiving people because what you are essentially saying is, I don't really care what's wrong with you. I'll take your money. That is how I see it. And I don't think that's really responsible. I don't think that is really showing what your values are as a professional in the best light. I also think the same thing applies to professionals who claim to work with eating disorders and also offer weight management. Because again, what that says is, yes, I want to help you recover, but only to a socially acceptable place where you look how society wants you to. You definitely need to weight restore, but not beyond a certain point because that's not good. That then becomes bad. And what you are doing is you're colluding with the eating disorder that fat is bad. So you cannot advertise, I think, ethically, both of those things at the same time. I think also when you see people on the one hand posting about, you know, give yourself unconditional permission to eat, follow this intuitive eating, non-diet, yay, all this is great. And then they go, so here's how you can sensibly lose weight because fad diets are bad. Mm. But, you know, watching your macros, that is good. It's like, no, that is just another diet. And that is really problematic as well. I feel like I'm getting very angry throughout a lot of this conversation today. And while that is an accurate representation of me as a person, I still feel like I'm getting very angry. I'm not angry all the time, I promise. There's just a lot of things to get angry about sometimes. And yeah, I think social media can be enraging for a lot of people. Oh, yes. So you're not alone. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it's been like, I looked at a post on social media the other day and the whole post was about what I found interesting. The whole post was centered around screwing the scales. Don't weigh yourself. It's a waste of time. Your number is not your worth. In the same post, it was a picture of someone standing on the scales with their weight number on it, then listing lots of different weights at different points. I saw this. Oh and my I, God. And the and I think like that's a great example of I think maybe personal confusion with the person sharing the content. I think there's yes. a there's a there's a you know personal confusion, but also that's massively confusing to a vulnerable audience because I think people do want to screw the scales. I think for a lot of people they step on the scales and it is not a happy consequence. Like the result of that, it really does dictate a lot of people's moods. And so a lot of us are saying you know screw the scales. The body coach says, screw the scales, right? 
Like, there's a lot of people Damn. saying it. But he he, used to, he always said, don't step, don't step on the sad step. But, so there's a lot of this kind of, like, non-diet, anti-diet language used. And then, in the same sentence, it's like, in the case of the body coach, you know, he's then obviously selling you his 90-day transformation plan. So two things are contradictory. It's like, your weight is irrelevant, but also lose weight, take photos. So those things are confusing. Mm. Um, I saw that same post. I saw that same post mm. and I was horrified. I think I sent it to a bunch of people like, oh my God, have you seen this? And then I realized, oh my God, I still follow this person. So I then decided to unfollow that person instantly. Uh, but I, I was so shocked when I saw that. I just think, how can you tell people that the scales are meaningless and then in the same breath, literally showcase how your weight has changed in the course of a few days in a drastic way like drastic way not good yeah and I think and I like once again have compassion for people sharing that content because I do think there's a genuine confusion and also I just think like as a as people consuming content we just need to be really um smart about that and I did see people kind of being like I don't know I think there was like the comments were also kind of one half people going, hang on a second, this is very confusing. This doesn't make sense. And then the other half being like, yeah, this is great. So I think that's when, you know, us as, as influencers have to be mindful of how we're using a platform and also us as consumers have to be mindful of what we're consuming and, you know, notice those red flags. Um, I do. Absolutely. Think, it's a I shared think, responsibility. It is a shared responsibility. Um, and like you said, like if those kind of things do start you thinking in old patterns or start comparing your weight to someone else's, then, you know, you, you're okay. If, even if you can't unfollow, I think mute button is brilliant. Oh, I love the mute button so much. Also, I love the restrict button. Yes. The restrict button is my new favorite thing in the universe. It is wonderful because you can stop someone you, you, it's not like blocking someone. So often when you block someone, people feel like, oh, you blocked me, therefore I won, which is infuriating because it's like, no, you're an asshole. That's what that means. It does not mean you've won. But when you restrict someone, what happens is they can still follow you. They can see everything that you post. They can even comment, but nobody, nobody will ever see it. And can you imagine anything more satisfying than watching people shout into the void, knowing they will see their comments appear, but you won't, nobody else is gonna. It is literally a waste of their time and space. And isn't that the most satisfying thing you've ever heard? I love it so much. I use it liberally. I love that. Yeah, I do. I, I have to, um, yeah, be mindful of watching the comments and things because I also want people to go into my comments and feel like they're in a safe space. They're, you know, I mean, they're in a place where they're supported and um, I don't want people arguing extensively with people in comments because, um, I don't know, I think it's stressful. It's stressful. Pixie, is there anything that, um, is there kind of anything major about kind of social media and food that we um, actually, we're going to cut that last sentence out of mine. One thing I wanted to talk, which you didn't talk about. You mentioned that you were a perfectionist and how perfectionist tendencies did turn up in 
your relationship with food and you know I would say you know same um and I would love to talk about just a few certain things just kind of to touch upon that maybe people listening may have a few kind of like I said red flags about how they're engaging with social media and how that's influencing their relationship with food um I wondered what your thoughts on, you know, how we can be wary of how we're using Instagram and other platforms. Yeah. Firstly, figure out if you're a perfectionist, because if you are, that is something you need to work on for a long time. I now describe myself as a recovering perfectionist because it is a work in progress and it takes time and it is hard for sure. It is really hard really really hard or also because perfectionism has been increasing substantially over the last 30 years or so especially amongst the millennial generation perfectionism uh, rates have increased hugely and social media is partly responsible for that for sure there's also a really interesting piece about how people who are perfectionists and or people who are more likely to compare themselves to others spend more time on social media and feel worse afterwards as a result Whereas people who feel much more comfortable and secure in themselves tend to spend less time on social media and tend to not feel as bad as a result afterwards. So social media does have significant power in that way. And we don't tend to recognize it very easily because it's repeated continuous exposure. It is not a one-off thing. It is that regular exposure to loads of different content or like a lot of comparison opportunities that contributes to that low mood. There's actually some really interesting research that shows that the amount of time you spend on social media now will affect how your body image is a year into the future. That is kind of a big deal. That is really quite significant, I think, and really shows that actually what we do right now on social media will impact us in the future. So do you think therefore like, following more body positive style accounts, following, um, so from, for example, I made a really conscious decision to follow people. I was only following thin white people for a very long time. Um, mm, you know, and making a conscious decision to follow people who, um, were from different backgrounds, different body sizes, did different types of fitness, maybe didn't do fitness at all. Maybe they just lived their lives. Um, just existing as humans just in the world. Just existing as humans in the world. And they maybe they're interested in travel or, I don't know, art or something and fashion. And, you know, maybe a year ago, I made that decision to, um, you know, really kind of broaden my horizon of what humans beings look like and how they existed. And maybe that has played out on my body image in a positive way now. Like, like I think we always immediately think like oh it could be a negative thing like if I'm immediately comparing myself this you know this then I'm gonna feel rubbish about myself in 12 months but you also could feel positive about yourself yes absolutely and yeah I I definitely agree that following a diverse different range of bodies on social media firstly is just more representative of how people look in the real world and the diversity of how humans can exist just existing uh, and that is a fabulous thing. It also, I think, helps to recognize that bodies can be amazing in a whole bunch of different ways. And it's not just that one way of looking is perfect and everything else is substandard, even though society would love us to believe that. That is definitely not true. I also think that actually following accounts that have nothing to do with bodies at all is also really helpful because, yes, it can be helpful to see a whole bunch of different people, but I think also 
we have to ask ourselves, why are we so interested in looking at other people's bodies at all? I think we also need to look beyond that. And I think we also need to follow people who, or follow accounts who don't post about anything to do with bodies. So I love following accounts that are houseplants. I, I mean, I mean, I'm a little bit obsessed with houseplants. I have, I'm growing an indoor jungle. I really love following houseplant accounts. How can I feel bad about myself when I'm looking at pictures of plants or when I'm looking at, you know, cats and kittens and little cute little puppies on the internet? How can I feel bad about myself when I'm doing that? And that is awesome. And so I think those things really do matter as well as also following food accounts who are just posting about food from a taste perspective that have nothing whatsoever to do with health to show that actually food is about so much more than just health it is primarily food should be delicious if food is not delicious what is the fucking point of what you're eating if it doesn't taste good seriously why bother why bother this is why i recommend so many people watch salt fat acid heat on netflix because it is just a beautiful example of someone unapologetically eating and enjoying food without any real discussion on is this healthy? Is this going to help me lose weight? None of that whatsoever. So I love that part as well. Also just follow people who eat differently to you to remind yourself that not everybody eats the same way you do that. Again, people eat in a variety of different ways. And also I would say limit your time on social media, especially if you're finding that it's making you feel like crap. If you're finding that you are spending hours and hours and hours on every day, and you can find this out. I was shocked when I first discovered just how much time I was spending on my Instagram. If you have any kind of phone, you can go on screen time and you can see how much time you're spending on apps. And you can also set limits on that. I know how to do it on an iPhone because I've done it. I set mine at three hours per day of Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I would sometimes go over that, but if I did, it would come up with uh, like a warning thing and it would say that I've reached my limit for the day and I have to manually override it. And while I can do that, it does stop me from automatically just scrolling through everything out of boredom or just out of habit. So that's really good. And I've actually brought that down recently and I'm very proud of this to an hour and a half per day. And I sometimes go over that, but like, this is kind of a big deal for me, okay? I can only, um, yeah, like it couldn't be me, not at this point. <laughs> um, no, I like, I would, I would say my social media is either A, a procrastination tool, um, or B, uh, it's kind of annoying when lots of social media is your job, which is a very unique thing. Mm-hmm. Like that's not for the case for many people. So I think for most people listening, like, I do think you can proactively do it. But do you know what I find the best way to not be on my phone? And I know it's really hard in Corona times when it's hard to be with other people. But just being present in the moment with other people, I find, is the best way to not be on my phone. Because for me, the phone is very much my thing when I'm on my own. If I'm with people, I'm just not on it. And, you know, I just went away this weekend and I was barely on my phone. I was like responding to messages from Thursday when I kind of like mentally logged off. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just didn't really even think about it. I could leave it and put it down. And I just wanted to like be present with people, which I said is a massive luxury right now because, um, you know, social distancing and everything. But yeah. um, I think we get so caught up in what everyone's eating on social media, what everyone's looking like on social media, what everyone's wearing, the fashion, all this pressure, all this levels of comparison that actually when you're with real people in the real world, um, 
it's really good to exist in the real world without documenting and sharing and being and you know yes. I think um yeah one of the like you know things I realized that when I got to a, you know a really disordered place with food is that like no matter what I ate I had to take a photo of it Mm. Even if I didn't share that photo, it had to be neatly presented for Instagram as if it was an Instagrammable meal to the point where I went, when I was really trying to get out that habit, I'd go home. My brother was kind of like, oh, you, you're not taking a photo of the meal. Come on, take the photo. And I was like, no, 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 I don't need to do that anymore. Mm. And the other thing was where, with the perfect presented food, I had to eat messy food on a plate. So I had to not make it look perfect. It had to look like a pile of food on a plate and I just had to eat it as a way to like not force myself to constantly be performing eating, performing mm. what I'm doing. And yeah. I think um, just by being around people and not even getting the phone out in the first place is a great way to just, you know, avoid that trap. For sure. And actually you make a really interesting point is that a lot of us spend a lot of time eating alone, but let's be honest, we're not really alone because we're on social media. So really mm-hmm. we're eating with hundreds, if not thousands of other people who then in that moment have a lot of power to influence us. In fact, there's really interesting uh, data that shows that the best time for restaurants to post on social media is during dinner time when everybody's eating mm-hmm. because everyone's on their phones, because everyone's watching food while eating food. And so, yeah, I... I mean, I offer a whole bunch of different uh, tips in the book of things I recommend, many of which I've already mentioned. But another one is that if you're eating, either put your phone in your bag or put it in another room. It's 50 minutes. You can just take that time away from your phone, even if you're on your own, especially if you're on your own. Actually, no, especially if you're with other people, but also when you're on your own, because you will probably enjoy that food a lot more. You will appreciate that food more. And you're taking the time to do something just for you without any distractions that's actually a really positive thing mm. yeah great tip great tip something i need i used to get better at when i'm on my own sometimes i do it sometimes i don't same and i know it's not, but it's not about perfection it's just about no. trying but look if it's not my phone it might be the tv oh yeah netflix i'm a big one for that as yeah. well or like youtube for me which isn't it on my phone it'll be on so i have to be kind of mindful of that as well because I know it's just replacing one screen with another. Like, let's it be is. honest. Let's be honest. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, I'm self-aware enough to realize that. Um, yay for therapy. Yay. <laughs> um, I'm really, like, I'm really intrigued um, into how that kind of, like, just to quickly just chat about the impact of therapy and kind of, you know, understanding the way you operate feeling your emotions and all that therapy how that plays into how we you know interact with food how we relate to it how we relate to social media and those kind of things and I know you're kind of like um you're studying um psychology which is psychotherapy is that right which is awesome psychotherapy um and are there a lot of psychotherapists who do food as well no um in fact I more I'm more likely to get messages from people saying I saw my therapist and and they said to cut out sugar for anxiety. So Ooh. as with all professions, people go outside their scope of practice, not good. I get upset about it and very angry. Um, so one of the, that's, I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this training is firstly, because I think it would allow me to do a much better job with my clients. Secondly, because I think it's really interesting and actually probably 
arguably necessary for the kind of work that I am doing and want to do. And thirdly, so I can talk to other therapists and say to them, stop talking about food. It's not good. You're causing more harm to people than you realize. And people are sometimes leaving therapists because they have fat phobic views, because they talk about weight loss, because they tell people to cut foods out. Therapists who are listening to this, you are not qualified to do that shit. Please stop. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really hard. Um, and I think particularly in the therapist position, that's a very influential place to be because like, you know, I see my therapist as, you know, a bit of a guide for me. You know, I really respect her and I look up to her and you know, I respect her opinion. And so I'm going to take it on board. Um, yeah. It's a really powerful and amazing relationship when it's not abused. And it's so powerful and incredible and trusting and extremely helpful. But because of that, because it's so intimate as well, it it can easily be abused. And it's really discouraging and frustrating when that does happen. Thankfully, you know, hashtag not all therapists. <laughs> But it is still a problem that I think needs addressing and I am more than willing to fight the good fight. I think that's awesome. And, I, you know, I wonder, and I know this is quite a deep question, so don't have to give a hugely deep answer. But I think a lot of times when we're looking for to control our food and sort our nutrition out and sort our fitness out, what we're really doing is trying to sort our emotions out and cope with all the other stuff and these are almost like the surface level things that we're trying to deal with and get right and you know sometimes so we can have the strength and the resilience to dig deeper um but yeah because what you're doing if you're just focusing on food what you're doing is you're essentially you're looking at some weeds in a field and you're just cutting off the top because that's what you can see the leaves Mm. what you're but actually there is a deep root system underneath that that you need to identify and extract in a careful way so you don't break off any bits that then leave there that get left there and then continue to grow but if you're just just focusing on food what you are essentially doing is just cutting off those top leaves you're not actually addressing the deep roots that are underneath that, which are the core of how we feel about ourselves as people. And sadly, social media presents to us that if we just sort the food, if we just get our exercise right, if we just get our food right, that everything will be solved. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, you and I have both learned the hard way that those are, for me anyway, it was a very surface level coping mechanism for a much deeper issue. And, you know, actually getting to the the like you said the root of the the um the weed the weed has you know actually made me a much healthier person um mentally physically emotionally um and so i'm always encouraging people on instagram or on this podcast to you know i understand therapists aren't accessible for everyone but even just to contemplate that the food and the exercise might not be the kind of the cure and it might be a plaster it might be a band-aid and also food is not the problem food is the perceived attempt at a solution to an underlying problem but food itself is usually not the problem Mm, yeah and on that note (laughs) yeah i think i really want to drive that point home because yeah, I just, I see it so much personally and, you know, in, 
you know, in the fitness industry, just this need, this need to control, this need to cope, this need to do all these things, be busy, be busy, be busy, be frantic, be frantic, be frantic is a very, I think, millennial way of validate me, validate me. And a, a millennial way of distracting ourselves from sadness and pain and, and difficult things. The inevitability of death. The inevitability <laughs> of death. There we go. <laughs> I've been um, reading existential psychotherapy books <laughs> lately, so that's why that's on my mind. Um, I can't wait to see what happens with that. And um, I'm sure we'll have you back on before you qualify, but when you qualify, we definitely should. I think that would just be awesome. Um, Pixie, this has been an absolute pleasure. When can people get the Insta Food Diet? Um, where can they get it from? And where can they find you? So the book is out in the UK on the 6th of August. It is also out in the US and in Canada in September. So you will be able to find it on in bookshops. You'll also be able to find it online through, you know, your giant capitalist websites that exist in the world. You'll find it on all of those. And you'll also be able to find it uh, through Hive, for example, which is a great uh, website where you can buy books from independent booksellers. Uh, fantastic website, highly recommended. Uh, you can also find me on social media. I'm at Pixie Nutrition on all the things. Uh, my clinic is currently full, but you can join the wait list if you're interested in having sessions with me, which will probably begin again uh, in August, perhaps. Um, but in the meantime, can you please buy my books because they are quite good? Yes, you've got other books as well. <laughs> List the other books. Buy my books, please. I put so much effort into them. Uh, there's The Wellness Rebel and there's the No Need to Diet book. Fab. And then we've got the Insta diet book coming soon to your bookshelves. Um, and I also should say one of the highlights that I always check in for is Pixie's Q and A on a Sunday on Instagram <laughs> stories. And you're the most like no bullshit, um, responses and you know, just, you really just cut straight to the point, which I think actually is often missing on social media as I'm not good at it. So I think you're much better at it than I am. Um, oh, thanks. And they're really informative and really helpful. And people always ask really interesting questions. And I feel like um, you get a whole variety of questions, actually. And so, um, yeah, I think they're an awesome, awesome content to consume if you're looking for more kind of nutrition Q&As. Thank you. That's very kind. You're so welcome. Pixie, thank you so much for joining us on the Train Happy Podcast. If you did enjoy the podcast, make sure to use the hashtag Train Happy Podcast tag at train happy podcast and you can tag myself at pixie nutrition at tally rye as well because we love to hear your feedback and thank you so much for listening bye everyone flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 